This is Good Together, the podcast that inspires you to create change in the world every day. Keep listening for actionable tips and tricks to incorporate eco-friendly practices into your daily life. We've been featured by Apple as the number one podcast for conscious consumers, and we can't wait to welcome you into our community of changemakers. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. We're the founders of Brightly.eco, the new platform for conscious consumers. We believe in supporting all creatures, great and small. And our team of experts show you how to live and shop responsibly by sharing world-changing lifestyle ideas, products, and more. To read show notes from Good Together and to browse all of the planet-friendly goodness that we feature, head to brightly.eco slash podcast. And to help spread the word about the podcast, tap on this episode and share Good Together with your friends and family. A simple text message helps us grow and create change around the world. All right, let's be honest. It really seems like the world is on fire right now. Whether you're based in Ohio or Berlin, I guarantee you've seen photos emerging from the West Coast right now. The San Francisco Bay Area looked like a modern-day apocalypse scene. I'll quote a few Twitter folks on that one. As the skies turned bright orange, and it's looking extremely smoky from Oregon up to Seattle. The common thread here is wildfires, and if you feel like they've been happening more and more and on a greater scale than they used to, you'd be right. While the exact cause of each wildfire varies, some have actually been started by gender reveal parties, but that's a topic for another time, yikes. These fires are burning brighter and longer because our planet is getting hotter and drier due to climate change. According to today's guest, Stanford climate scientist Noah Diffenbaugh, if you believe in thermometers, you believe in climate change. We have to agree. Lisa and I wanted to respond quickly and ask an expert to weigh in to the questions we've all been asking ourselves as the skies turn orange and we witness the displacement of thousands of people and the destruction of millions of acres of habitat for wildlife. In addition to teaching at Stanford, Noah's life work has been dedicated to unpacking the relationship to people and climate change. In today's episode, he shares his thoughts on why climate change is affecting wildfires, how people contribute to climate change, and how you can make a difference in the fight against the warming of our planet. Let's get into it. This is the latest episode of Good Together. We came up with this episode relatively quickly because we wanted to be able to respond to something that's actively affecting most of us here on the West Coast now. And that is what is going on between wildfires and climate change? What is the link between the two issues? Why is this happening? And really, how can we start to answer these questions together and work together to stop it from happening? And so Lisa, I know you in particular have been really 
affected being up in the Bay Area right now, right? Of course, Laura. So not a fun topic to discuss, but we are living through it. And this week has been surreal for everyone who lives in San Francisco Bay Area. As you guys know, there's wildfires all across the West Coast, California, Oregon, and Washington State, where Laura is in. I know we have listeners from all over the world even, and of course, all over the USA. So I just want to give a bit of a background what happened this week. Of course, fires in California has been kind of intensifying every single year since I've been living here. But this Wednesday, I woke up around 9.40 a.m., totally thinking that it's 3 a.m. at night. I was very confused. I didn't understand why my husband's alarm was ringing at like 3 a.m. and he didn't wake me up after he got out of bed. So I was very confused when I looked at my phone. The house was completely dark and outside was this surreal orange cloud of smoke. I don't even know what was going on. And that's kind of how the whole Wednesday went on. The air quality was actually not that bad because we were breathing the air, as I understand, from the ocean. But the smoke clouds were high at the top, completely covering the sun. That's why, you know, it was so surrealistically dark. Yeah, I remember when you sent me these photos. Yeah, photos. Of course, I was looking on Twitter. It really looked like an episode of Blade Runner. I mean, just in general, it looked surreal. And so we've had a little bit of wildfire smoke coming into the Seattle area from some wildfires also happening in Oregon. So suffice it to say, there's a lot going on right now. People have a lot of questions and we're super excited to welcome Dr. Noah Diffenbaugh to the podcast. He is a current professor in the School of Earth, Energy and Environmental Sciences at Stanford University. The fact that Noah is able to join us and bring his expertise to help answer the questions that are on our minds is fabulous. So welcome, Noah. Um, I wonder if you could just give us a brief overview of what you tackle in your work at Stanford and sort of why you decided to get involved in this career path. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. So I am interested in climate change in general. And in particular, my research group focuses on understanding what it is about the climate system that most directly and acutely impacts people and ecosystems. A lot of our focus is right at that interface, and it really ends up being very often extreme events. You know, the, the extremes are really where we feel the climate system, where the climate system impacts us. Uh, what we're going through uh, along the Pacific Coast in California, Oregon, and Washington right now is a prime example of that. And w- what's really being laid bare is how climate interacts with so much of you know what we have set up as society, right? So inequality, vulnerability, you know, our management systems for dealing with environmental stresses, and on and on. We have you know this whole society <laughs> that's evolved over decades and centuries and millennia, and you know what we're seeing in these wildfires and what we're seeing in many many extreme events around the world is that in addition to the globe warming overall, you know, where it's really impacting us is where it amplifies the different stresses and our capacity to respond to those. And really extreme events are are where we see that most often. Mm -hmm. So can you explain to us what exactly is going on right now on the West Coast, right? How many fires, I don't know if you have the latest information, how many fires are there, why they have mostly started, and why was the sky orange? Why are we seeing this surreal pictures all over the internet? And of course, we, if you, I think you in the Bay Area as well, you've probably observed it personally too. Yeah, here in the Bay Area and living through this, I mean, fortunately, you know, lucky to be sheltered from 
you know, the fires themselves and, you know, have a lot of privilege and, and resources uh, personally and at the university. So we're not suffering the worst of it, but we're cer- certainly suffering the air quality. And, and I actually grew up in the Santa Cruz mountains. And so I know a lot of people who've been evacuated. And in fact, one of the people that died uh, over in the Santa Cruz mountains, who was some listeners may have seen the article in the New York Times. You know, he's someone we, we used to give a ride into town to when I was a child. So it certainly has hit home. What's going on now is we're having the most the widest spread wildfire event in California's recorded history, and certainly in the history of our last century of, of actively managing wildfires, you know, in, in the capitalist society that we have now. So I'm, I'm setting aside, you know, the indigenous uh, fire management practices from that statement about the statistics. So in terms of the last century, this is the most area that's ever burned in California in a single year. And we're still, <laughs> those those fires that have contributed most of that are still burning. Uh, and we still have time to go in the calendar year, but we're already well past the record. We have the largest single fire in California's history, which is you know, now, you know, as of late this week, the complex in Mendocino County, the complex being a large number of fires, you know, what were originally separate fires in an area that are being managed as a single incident, those have now over the last three weeks all burned together. And as of yesterday afternoon, you know, have become one, I think it's fair to say colossal fire, you know, it's 750,000 acres. The previous record was around 450,000 acres. And that was just two years ago, also, also up in Mendocino County and surrounding counties. We have the largest by far single fire burning in California's history. We have the second and third largest as well, uh, which, you know, are two of the fires that have been surrounding the Bay Area in recent weeks. You know, we also have the, at the moment, the ninth largest fire, you know, so that makes four of the top 10. And the list goes on and on. I mean, we have we have fires that are tens of thousands of acres that literally very few people have are even aware of. So this is this has not happened in our recorded history, but it's also very consistent with the trends. Yeah, I've seen the number that 2.3 million acres have been burned in 2020 versus 260,000 in 2000. 2019. And that's for California, right? It's not for West Coast altogether. That's for California. And mm-hmm. I think I've seen a lot of comparisons between 2020 and 2019. And I think that's, you know, one of the key tenets of studying the climate system is not to compare just one year to one other year, right? And 2019 was actually a very, in terms of recent years, 2019 was a very light year for acres burned in California. So I think that it's true that there's an order of magnitude more acres this year than last year, but I don't think that's the most instructive comparison we look at the long-term trends over the Western U.S. as a whole, the area burned has increased about tenfold in the last four decades. And we know from careful, objective, hypothesis-driven research that about half of that increase in area burned is attributable to global warming. And the main mechanism of that is the effect of a warming atmosphere on the dryness of the vegetation. When we have warm and hot conditions, soils draws moisture out of vegetation. And we know that that over the long term, that has contributed about half of the increase in area burned for the Western U.S. overall. We also know that that has been in play in California. In my research group, just at the end of last month, had a paper published analyzing the wildfire weather conditions in California. And what we found is that for the autumn season, 
season, which we're entering into now, the frequency of extreme wildfire weather. So the combination of winds and humidity and the antecedent and the recent precipitation and temperature that dry out the fuels, that combination, we've been experiencing increasing frequency of extreme days. And over the last four decades, our research shows that the California is now uh, on average getting twice as many extreme wildfire weather days during the autumn season compared to four decades ago. So we have clear evidence that global warming is contributing to the rising risk of wildfire in California more broadly in the West. That doesn't mean global warming is the only factor. There's always ignition. There's always fuel. You don't get wildfires without those other ingredients. I feel like in general, the conversation, at least what I've observed, has shifted from people denying that climate change is causing this now to more wanting to figure out what exactly the human equation is when we think about all this. Of course, people like to debate whether or not human activities have had you know an outsized impact on climate change. And you know, I, I believe they have. I believe you do as well. <laughs> so I wonder if you could tell us. A a little bit more about any specific events that humans have been doing on a repetitive basis that we feel like are directly impacting the weather patterns and the you know conditions necessary for wildfires. Yeah, so that's what I study. And I want to say a couple things. One is it's not about belief. And it's not about feeling. I love this. Yes. So, I mean, this isn't about what you believe or I believe or yeah. or anyone else believes. As I say in my introductory class every year, if you believe in thermometers, then you believe in global warming. If you believe we can measure the weather, then you believe that the frequency of extreme wildfire weather in California has been increasing. It's just a measurement. And so it's not whether we feel that it's changing or whether we believe that humans are causing it. This is about our our ability to observe the world, our ability to understand how the world works. And, you know, scientists are are extremely skeptical. We we require an extremely high burden of proof. You know, in our research, for example, which has shown that across the globe, long-term global warming and climate change have increased the odds of record-setting hot events at more than 80% of the world, you know, almost the entire globe. We, We require a very, very high burden of proof to make that conclusion. And you can think about this as a beyond a reasonable doubt standard, right? Our starting position is that the world is chaotic. The climate system is chaotic. Every extreme event that we experience is due to bad luck. It's due to noise. And we require, you know, a very high confidence to reject that null hypothesis. So when we say that global warming has increased the odds of severe heat across most of the globe, when we say that global warming has increased the risk of of extreme wildfire weather in California, when we say that global warming has contributed around half of the increase in area burned over the last four decades in the Western US, those are conclusions that are drawn from starting point of extreme skepticism and very, very strong evidence to overcome that skepticism. Yeah, I love that you mentioned this because in general, like I said, we get so many questions from our audience about the the reasons behind what's happening. And then occasionally we will get questions about legitimacy. So I really appreciate you going into there. So I wonder if you can, you know, given that this is your your field of study, I wonder if you can share with us any specific insights that you feel like the average consumer might like to know about what humans have been doing to really create this type of system in place. In terms of global warming and climate change, you know, we have very high confidence that the primary driver of global warming is 
the human emission of greenhouse gases, right? This is primarily from fossil fuel combustion. I, I use fossil fuels every day, and billions of other people in the world do too. So global warming is really the side effect of an activity that, it, that provides great benefit to humanity, and that's consumption of energy, right? We need energy to function in our modern world, and the billions of people in the world that do not have access to modern energy resources suffer greatly because of that energy poverty whether it's clean water or electricity or transportation or the indoor air pollution from cooking with wood or dung rather than a clean cook stove. There's real harm around the world from lack of modern energy resources. And, and I personally, and I'm sure many of your listeners, you know, benefit greatly from modern energy resources and, and in particular the combustion of fossil fuels. That's the benefits of energy are not a bad thing. They're very good. And they have this side effect of warming the planet. And warming the planet means that, that we're undergoing a lot of changes and the ones you know, most acutely, the increasing frequency and severity of extreme events like heat waves, like heavy rainfall, like you know, the extent of flooding from storm surge when tropical cyclones make landfall. And you know, here in the West and California, as well as other parts of the world, and intensifying conditions for, for wildfires when when we get ignition, whether it's from lightning or from, from human activities, when the strong winds blow because of the natural atmospheric patterns, we're much more likely to get the kind of extreme rate of growth like we saw this week. This episode is brought to you by Real Paper, tree-free toilet paper made from 100% bamboo. Our community has been asking us about paper-free swaps for items around the house, so this alternative to traditional toilet paper is right up our alley. I don't know about you, Laura, but I always run out of toilet paper. Me too, and I love that real paper delivers direct to your home while also using plastic-free packaging. It makes stuff so much easier. Also, while you probably haven't considered the environmental impact of your bathroom habits, Unfortunately, over 27,000 trees are flushed down the toilet every day across the world. That's a lot of waste. And by using paper that comes from bamboo, you're supporting a product made out of renewable, eco-friendly resource. It's also super soft, and I couldn't tell a difference between the 100% bamboo paper and what I'm used to. Good Together listeners get 25% off your first order by using code BRIGHTLY at realpaper.com. That's R-E-E-L paper.com. You keep saying extreme, and so I wanted to clarify that point, because, you know, uh, we always say climate change and global warming, right? And I, I remember when I read a few years back a book called Hot, Flat, and Crowded by Thomas Friedman from New York Times, I believe. And that's when I it kind of, for the first time, clicked in my head. It's actually not necessarily, it is global warming. The temperatures are rising, but it for us as kind of people feeling effects of it, it's, it might not be warming in some parts of the world, right? It's like it's more about, as he coined it, global weirdening. Is that correct in your view? It's like it's just more extreme and weird conditions. Yeah, weird's not a scientific term. Uh, weird <laughs> is a, you know, a judgment, and I'm not going to intervene in anyone's personal judgment of whether something's more or less weird. I will say that we have very strong evidence that the global mean temperature is going up. When temperature is rising, we call that warming. That's the English word for temperature rising is warming. When it's global temperature that's going up, it's global warming. I mean, this is just simply a statement of 
the fact that the global mean temperature is rising. It is global warming. Global warming is happening. It's the right word for that phenomenon. And in addition, the climate is changing, right? The climate beyond the temperature is changing. Not every change is because of global warming. Not every extreme event is because of global warming. But global warming is the primary driver of many of the changes that we're experiencing. And you know, where we really feel the most impact is when it's the extremes. Extremes always result from a number of different conditions coming together, right? It's always just by definition, right? To get rare events, there have to be a number of different ingredients that come together. And we have very strong evidence that for many different kinds of extremes, global warming is, is putting a thumb on the scale, making it more likely that we experience extreme events that are fall outside of our historical experience. And we're certainly living through that right now here, here on the West Coast. Absolutely. And in general, I think that the realization that most of us are having that these strange events are only going to continue to multiply and get worse, I think is causing a groundswell of action, at least what we're seeing from our point of view here at the podcast um, and on our platform, Brightly. So I wonder, Noah, if you can tell us a little bit about what we should be looking to do from a voting perspective, right? The the election is coming up without needing to endorse any particular candidates or take any particular sides. I wonder if you had any, you know, policy recommendations that we should be looking for in our, you know, potential elected leaders to be enacting. Like what could we ask our governments to do in general to help, you know, mitigate some of these effects? Yeah. So I mean I can tell you what I say on the first day of class. You know, about what the world is you know facing over the next three decades, five decades in terms of climate that that's not a statement about about what to vote for, but it is a statement about what policies will be necessary if if society chooses to try to manage the effects of climate change. So, you know, so for a student entering you know, my introductory class, over, over their adult life, there's really three grand challenges with respect to, to climate change that are, that are very much intertwined. One is that the world will have to provide more energy than it does right now. And to provide, you know, energy equity for the global population you know, that's on the order of four times as much energy as, as we're supplying now globally. So to ensure that every person on planet Earth has access to sufficient energy for a decent life, you know, we're going to have to supply something on the order of four times as much energy as we do now and increase access. It's not simply a matter of supplying more. It's actually overcoming the barriers of inequality and poverty to increase access. So that's a monumental challenge right there regardless of the source of of that energy supply. The second challenge is that the fundamental physics of planet Earth dictate that in order to stabilize the climate system, stabilize the global temperature, stop global warming, will require essentially bringing the world's greenhouse gas emissions to zero, reaching you know, decarbonizing the global energy system, the global economy. That's a monumental challenge. Right? We supply around 500 exajoules of energy a year, and you know, 80, 85 percent of that is from 
fossil fuels. So that in itself, the, the achieving the Paris climate goals and decarbonizing the global energy system is a second monumental challenge, even if we're not increasing the, the total energy supply globally. And then the third challenge is that we're already being impacted by the global warming that's happened to date, which is around one degree Celsius relative to the pre-industrial. The Paris Agreement sets two degrees so, you know, we're halfway there. It sets two degrees as a limit. And actually, you know, the countries have agreed to pursue 1.5 degrees of warming. So that guarantees that we're going to, even if we achieve the first two challenges, we're, we're going to experience more global warming, more climate change, more extreme events like what we're going through right now. Those are the three challenges. Doing any one of them is really a grand global generational challenge, doing all three simultaneously is going to be really complex. So it's a long answer to your question of what can individuals and voters prioritize, but it's really in those three areas, increasing energy supply and access around the world, decarbonizing the global energy system, and uh, adapting to and becoming more resilient to the climate change that will happen along the way. Wow, yeah, decarbonizing entire kind of our entire energy system sounds like indeed an almost impossible task, but this is kind of a little bit not on the consumer level, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on, you know, Apple, for example. Uh, you probably have heard the news. They have announced that they are going to be carbon neutral by 2030, which includes their supply chain. Do you think, this is on a business level, of course, but do you think this kind of approaches from you know, truly gigantic businesses. Is that kind of one of the most effective way to get to this goal of decarbonizing an entire system? Yeah, I mean, what I just said about the world reading, needing to become, you know, net zero in greenhouse gas emissions is the whole world doing what you just described as Apple's goal. And if the whole world does that by 2050, goes from the 40 billion tons of CO2 per year that we're emitting now globally to a net zero emissions, you know, in 30 years, then that, you know, will we'll, the world will have about a 50% chance of staying below two degrees C. So in order for the world to do that by 2050, entities like Apple will have to do it faster, right? And so that, that 2030 goal is well aligned with that reality that there are so many people around the world who, you know, in order to, you know, achieve a, uh, you know, what I think we would consider in our own lives to be a minimum level of acceptable human well-being, which requires quite a bit of energy. Uh, there's so many people who lack that and need to increase their energy consumption in order to achieve even a fraction of what we have that the people, the countries, the corporations, the entities that, you know, are already there based on the basic arithmetic, you know, they'll, we'll all need to achieve that carbon neutrality sooner than, than the global average in order, if the globe is going to achieve it in time to meet the Paris goals. You know, an, another way to think about this is that to stabilize at two degrees Celsius, so again, we're already above one degree Celsius globally uh, in terms of warming, and, and to stabilize below two is going to require about a 3% decrease globally per year sustained. And to achieve the 1.5 Paris goal, 1.5 degree Paris goal will require about a 7% decrease per year globally. And we're, we're increasing year after year. And there have been a couple of years where we've had global decreases and they've been associated with large economic shocks. 
So there isn't a country in the world that has had a sustained decrease year after year with a thriving economy and and human well-being and that that has done it at the at you know at the scale of of decarbonization that the whole world will will need to to achieve so to to meet those paris goals so this is a big challenge and i'm not saying it's not possible i'm not saying it's not worth pursuing but it's not it, it goes well beyond not using plastic bags it goes well beyond changing one's light bulbs uh, personal choices absolutely matter and it it will fundamentally require a restructuring of our of our energy system and our energy economy. That's just the basic uh, arithmetic uh, and the basic math of the of the global energy balance. Absolutely. So, kind of you know, wanting to end on actionable tips that people can take, since that's really the the main thread of our of our podcast. I wonder. Yes, of course, using less plastic and cutting down on one's um, personal carbon emissions makes a difference. Um, But when we talk about a larger scale problem like this, sometimes it can feel like that's not quite enough. So I wonder if you have any advice that you give students in your class or just folks that ask you on the street about what they can do personally to, you know, help us, um, you know, get more on track to reducing our carbon emissions globally. I'll get back to those those grand challenges, right? I, and, and I think COVID is a great, what, what's happened during the last six months of sheltering is a really great illustration, not, not in terms of the disease, which is obviously a global tragedy, but in terms of what's happened with greenhouse gas emissions during the last six months. There have been reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. They've been very proportional to the economic reduction, economic activity. And what, what, what the last six months has made very clear is that austerity is not going to be sufficient to decarbonize the energy system, right? So, it's, so there, there's room for being more efficient. Uh, you know, Steve Chu is a colleague here who is a Nobel Prize winner and, and former Secretary of Energy. You know, he often says, you know, the, the cheapest kilowatt of energy is the one you don't use, right? So using less absolutely has a role to play for those of us who use a lot, myself included. But we're not going to solve global warming by shutting uh, shutting the world down. That's just a reality. And so that means that it's, you know, really about the source of the energy right? Having non-emitting energy sources, and that can be solar and wind and hydropower, nuclear, those are all non, uh, you know, essentially non-emitting sources. There's also, you know, efforts to develop technologies that capture CO2 emissions from fossil fuel combustion and, and sequester those emissions, keep them out of the atmosphere. So that, you know, such technologies would also be non-emitting sources if they're achieved at scale. So, you know, really, each of us have have a role to play in our individual consumption. And that's part of the puzzle. And finding ways to rapidly remake the energy system is, uh, you know, I'm not saying that should happen. I'm not saying that will be easy. But to achieve the Paris goals and really to stabilize the climate system at all at any level will require that. We know that emissions will have to be brought to net zero. So uh, it's really what we do in our everyday lives as well as what 
we do at the large scale as a society. Laura, I think that's a great place to end the conversation, right? Of kind of thinking of what we each can do to reduce our personal carbon carbon emissions and what we can do in terms of supporting companies who are doing this stuff and who are doing things right. And of course, voting for candidates uh, who are, you know, focusing on the environment and recognizing the scope and the importance and the urgency of this climate change. Absolutely. And so, no, we just wanted to thank you um, for taking the time out of your day. I'm sure you've got quite a full dance card um, given the current events happening. But thank you so much. And we look forward to sharing this with our audience. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Good Together. As always, you can get show notes and explore lots more content related to all things eco-friendly living by checking out brightly.eco slash podcast. And don't forget to join in on the conversation that's happening on our Facebook group. Simply search Good Together Ethical Shopping and it'll come up. You can also leave us a question through voicemail. The link is on brightly.eco slash podcast. If you're into social media, give us a follow on Instagram, Facebook, and all of the channels. Our username is brightly.eco. Finally, we want to leave you with a reminder. Every day is a chance for you to create change, and you're already covered for today since you joined us here on the podcast. Stay kind and live brightly.